700 years before the arrival of Jesus, Isaiah has prophesied about the means by which salvation would come to the ends of the earth. Isaiah is prophesying about how the arm of the Lord would be revealed, how there would be a people who can now have peace with God, no longer be separated because of their sins. And the way that this would happen is in the most astonishing way is that God was going to send his servant and his servant was going to go through amazing events in life to bring about the salvation and reconciliation of the world. We're spending our time in the final verses of Isaiah 53, where we just continue to see the description of what the servant of God, Jesus, was going to endure. We've noticed up to this point a a picture of the suffering. We saw from Isaiah 53 in verse 2 through verse 6 detailed descriptions about the suffering that Jesus would endure because of our sins and our transgressions. And Isaiah continues to give us a picture as he illustrates for us the details of what this servant will accomplish for us, how he will save us from our sins through the things which he suffered. We'll begin in verse 7 and notice the rest of the description that's given for us here concerning the work of the servant. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He begins and just pictures more about what the servant is going to do. And he describes humble submission that we continue to read about this affliction and oppression that the servant is going to endure. And what becomes, I think, most shocking about this declaration is that here is the innocent son of God. Here is the innocent lamb of God. And we are told that he is not going to make a protest against the false accusations made against him. I'd like for you to consider in your own life when somebody says you did something that you didn't do, do you ever just stand there and not say a word? Well, I'm going to tell you, that's not what I did. That's not right. I didn't do the things that you said that I did. This is a shocking declaration that he is going to be oppressed and afflicted and deal with mistreatment and have an unjust an injustice happen against him. And it says he's not going to open his mouth at all. He's not going to have a protest. He's not going to argue with him in the slimes. And it's one of the most amazing things that you read about as Jesus stands before each of these various people who hold trial and interrogate him from Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate. He's never arguing with them. He's not saying, now the reason I'm here is completely false. This is a kangaroo court and you guys are all wrong. Just as the text says, though oppressed and afflicted, He is going to remain silent to those with the charges that are laid against him. Using an imagery that he is willingly, he is voluntarily going to his slaughter. It's one of the things that makes Luke's gospel really interesting. It's a line that's easy to pass over in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. It tells us there that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. 
He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And he didn't go the other direction and say, well, now I know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. Let's stay in Galilee. He sets his face to Jerusalem. He willingly is going to his death. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the mistreatment. He knows the oppression and the affliction. And he goes that way to be able to save us from our sins. And you might notice an interesting contrast that is made in the imagery that's used. In verse 6, he said that we were like sheep. Remember that in verse 6? We were all like sheep. We all willingly chose to go away from the path of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to our own paths. So here is the will of God. We acted like sheep and did not follow what God said. We went our own course. And then interesting, we get a different picture for Jesus. Verse 7 says, now he's like a lamb, but he's not like a lamb like us. He doesn't do what we did. We're like sheep and we all run in different directions. We go our own path. He is a lamb who submits to the will of God. He becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb that goes to the slaughter and silently goes to that, voluntarily giving his life. And so Isaiah pictures an interesting contrast. We, like sheep gone astray, we deserve disaster for what we've done. But rather another Lamb will come who will take away the sins of the world. He will come and do what is necessary so that we can be saved from our sins. And so Jesus allows these things to happen so that the will of God will be accomplished so that we could be saved from our sins. It is an amazing picture of what humble submission looks like. False charges against him and injustice used against him. And he silently stands there before his accusers and before those charges and has no answer because it is his desire to give his life for others. And notice how verse 8 presses that imagery. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. I think the point being from start to finish, there was nothing right about what happens here. From start to finish, what we see is that there is no justice and it's all going to culminate in his death. What we see in the betrayal, the trial scenes, nothing is going according to justice. Nothing is going according to the Jewish laws at all. And yet Jesus is willingly doing that. And the point that he goes further and says in verse 8, And as for his generation, he now asks the question, Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So injustice happens, oppression occurs from start to finish. And then he asks the question, who is going to care? And the answer is no one. No one is going to care about the injustice that occurs. Nobody cares about the oppression that he endures. When all this is happening during the trial scene of Jesus, where is somebody to stand up and say, you know what, this isn't right. We're breaking Jewish law here, Sanhedrin. We shouldn't be doing this. We have him on false charges. We have false witnesses. Nobody stands up and offers a defense for Jesus. Nobody comes into the rescue and says, this isn't right. 
And verse 8 predicts all of that and says, as for the generation, who's going to consider that he's being cut off from the land of the living? Who's going to consider that what is leading to his death is absolutely a travesty against justice? It was wrong in every way that he is innocent beyond all measures that were given against him, that no one could lay a charge at him. And Isaiah says, and guess what? Nobody cared that he was innocent. Nobody cared that none of these charges were worthy of a judgment against him and that all of them were false. And that is why he wants to make the point again. It is a point that Isaiah circles at again and again. Notice the reason why he is stricken. Verse 8. Is it for his own doing? Is it for his own sins? Is it for his own actions? No, he is stricken for the people's rebellion. Isaiah wants to make that very clear. And he comes at that quite a few times in this prophecy. This is not Jesus suffering for his own actions. He is suffering for the world. He is suffering for the sins of the world. He's not doing this because there was something wrong with him. He's not doing this because he had sins that were worthy of a judgment. Instead, he's doing it for the world. And Isaiah asks, and who would consider that? Is anybody going to care? And that is a worthy consideration for us today. How true that question is, does anybody care that Jesus died for the sins of many? That he gave his life because of our rebellion. And will anybody in this generation consider it? Will anybody think about what our Lord has done for us? Isaiah says in his generation, no one thought about it. And they send him willingly to his death. That they will all shout, crucify, crucify. That they will not look at him and say, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is the the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. Release him. No one will consider that. No one will do that. It is a miscarriage of justice from beginning to end. But Jesus willingly endures it because of the rebellion of his people. He will go through this because of our sins. And amazingly, he will do this knowing that no one's going to care. That people are not going to care while these events are unfolding. That the people that he came to die for will shout for him to be killed rather than asking for his deliverance. Verse 9 describes the result. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. The burial is now depicted and I want us to consider for a moment. Verse nine is another shocking prophecy. It is really outlandish in a lot of ways. During that time, the most common practice was that you would be buried in an ossuary in your family tomb. And so the result of the body of Jesus is quite curious. And I think the New American Standard puts this contrast together well when it says, His grave was assigned with the wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death. Is if you think about what is happening with Jesus in the crucifixion, 
What typically happened to these vile criminals after their crucifixion is that their body was just dumped. Often in the Valley of Hinnom was one of the places where you would dump those bodies. That's where the wicked men would be assigned to go. If nobody's going to take the body and not be put in the family tomb, then you're just going to be cast out and your body would rot somewhere else. And yet the prophecy says, though he's assigned with the wicked and he's counted like the criminals, the result of the burial will not match that. Instead of that happening, what strangely is going to happen is his body is going to be with the rich man. And he said, you read that in Isaiah and go, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You're going to die with the wicked, so we know what would happen to the body then. But instead, you're going to be buried in a rich man's tomb, which then Matthew jumps on and says, it isn't interesting. And after Jesus dies, there's this fellow that we haven't read about that just comes along, Joseph Arimathea, and says, I want the body. And we're noted that he is a rich man and he places him in his own unused tomb. A rarity at that time. An unused tomb. Again, typically you had one tomb and all the family members were thrown in that one tomb. And here is Isaiah prophesying hundreds of years in advance. Should have gone with the wicked the way the people treated him, but instead he ends up in the tomb of a rich man. And then Isaiah wants to do it again to make sure we haven't missed this. And it wasn't because of his own sins. In fact, to say it very shockingly, not only had he done no violence, but there was no deceit found in his mouth. Could anybody else say that? I I read those words and I go, never been deceitful out of your mouth ever. Isaiah drives at the innocence of Christ. There was no cause for this treatment. He does not deserve this. No violence done. Nothing worthy of crucifixion. And then presses the innocence even further and says, there's not even a word that he said that you can hold him guilty on. And Jesus throughout the trial says that. You heard my words, you know my teachings, bring the witnesses if you think you have something against me. I did not teach these things in in secret. I was in the temple publicly proclaiming these things. There's nothing that he's hiding. He has truth coming out of his mouth at all times. No deceit found in his mouth. And so an amazing picture here is given to us in verse 9 about the unusual circumstances of his burial. It would not be what would have been expected of a first century Jew. And yet he ends up in not a family too. And not thrown where the wicked body criminals would have been thrown. But in the tomb of a rich man that had never been used before. And then God says, I want to make sure you really know something. Verse 10. Even though we have a miscarriage of justice oppression, affliction. He is innocent, no violence, no deceit found in his mouth. And though he is killed for the cause, he wants us to know something. It was the will of the Lord. This was not an accident. 
There is nothing going on here that is outside of the sovereign plan of God. This is exactly how God intended it to happen. This was fulfilling everything that God had planned. And so verse 10, he brings it further. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is exactly what God had planned. This is not just simply lawless men getting a wild hair and and God came along and, wow, we didn't know that was going to happen. This is exactly what was going to happen. And Isaiah is prophesying it hundreds of years in advance to make sure that all the world would know that this was not an accident, but God had chosen this path so that deliverance could be made. In fact, this is what makes it amazing. Notice in verse 10, it says, when his life or his soul makes an offering for guilt. A lot of translations will say sin offering, a guilt offering is the most literal, and I think we should stay with guilt offering for a number of reasons. Because the guilt offering has a very strong reference to the Old Testament. There was a distinction between the sin offering and the guilt offering. If you remember, the guilt offering was a, a powerful offering because when you committed a sin and there was a way to bring about restitution, then the offering was made and you made restitution for your sins plus 20%. And even some of your translations might even call it a restitution offering or a compensation offering. This is what the guilt offering was, is that there were sins that you would commit and you can't make compensation. There's nothing you can do about it. There's not a compensatory damages that you could give. But there are sins that do have that. You've done it wrong and you can make restitution. And so it's tied then to the guilt offering. And so the picture is given here is that Jesus now becomes this restitution offering. But notice it's not that he brings the offering. He is the offering when his life when his soul makes a offering for guilt, he is the compensation. He is the restitution. He is the way so that we could have reconciliation to God. Jesus is pictured as that very offering. It is a unique image. And yet I think a very strong one because the scriptures repeatedly describe Jesus that way. Even Jesus own words. I'm only going to throw a few up here. I was tempted to give you a ton of them and I'll just give you four. But two words that appear over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus own words. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many. Ransom is all about a price being paid. When there is a ransom, then something got paid to set someone free. And that's what the guilt offering was, is a payment has been made so that now we are free. Now we don't have to bear the consequences of our judgment and our sins and what we deserve. And here Jesus uses that very imagery and says, I'm the ransom. I'm the payment price. Here, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
He is the price. This was the price that had to be paid. So that restitution could be made for our sins. So that we could be reconciled to God. The other word that's often used in the New Testament besides ransom is the word redemption or redeeming, which again is a transaction image. Titus chapter 2 verse 14, speaking of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice the same idea. You were purchased, you were redeemed. So that now you could be God's people again, set free from lawlessness, purified to be his people to do good works. You are in sin and you had a problem that you couldn't solve. Jesus becomes the guilt offering. He is the restitution offering. He is the ransom price. He is the redemption that sets us free from our sins so that now we can be his people. Similarly, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And nearly every book in the New Testament speaks of the ransom redeeming work that God accomplished through Jesus. He is the guilt offering. And that is why that imagery is so useful is that this was the compensation that was needed to pay the price for our sins so that we can now be the people of God in spite of all that we've done. And then if verse 10 isn't shocking enough, verse 10 says his life is going to be made the guilt offering. Okay. And now look at the next sentence. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What? You just made his life the offering. And yet now you say he will see his offspring and prolong his days. How is that possible? We're talking about the death of the servant. We are seeing him being like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, who is oppressed and afflicted. He is killed. His life is given as the offering, the restitution offering before God. And then we're told these words in verse 11 that he will he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Verse 11 out of his anguish, his of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. How is that possible? How is it possible that he is going to give his life? For our sins. And then have a description that the servant is going to have a long life after his death, have the blessings of God, and see many offspring, spiritual children, that will belong to him. Not only 700 years before the arrival of Jesus is the details of the death of Christ given. But there's even now a picture of resurrection that's going to happen. He's going to die, and yet he will see. 
He's going to die, yet his soul will be satisfied. He's going to die, and yet his days will be prolonged. He's going to die, and yet he will see his offspring. What a picture that is given here is that even though he's going to suffer and die, an amazing miracle is going to occur. That he is going to show victory over death. He is going to show power over death, power over sin, power over Satan, and conquer those things. Because he is the Son of God. It is the resurrection of Jesus that proves who he is. The book of Romans begins with that, is that he was proven to be the son of God by the resurrection. And Isaiah says, that's right. Looking well into advance, he will have offspring. His days will be prolonged. He will be satisfied by the work that he's done. He will see the result of his suffering. He will see the result of his death. And the result is glorious. The result is glorious. The end of verse 10, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He is going to accomplish his work. This reminds us of chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He will be successful. He will accomplish the will of the Lord. He will not fail in the task. Though he's being killed, that is the will of the Lord. That is the accomplishing of the plan. So that as we see in verse 11, The result is make many to be accounted as righteous. The wording is just right because there is none who are righteous. Not a single one. The Apostle Paul was emphatic about that in Romans chapter 3. But through the guilt offering of Christ, we're counted as righteous. Through the offering, through the sacrifice, now God can credit us and say, justified. Righteous in his sight. The Apostle Paul summed this up extremely well in Romans 3, verse 22. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and are justified by his grace as a gift. There's no one righteous, all have sinned, but. We're justified by His grace. How? Through the redemption. Here's our guilt offering, payment. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Here is our sacrifice of atonement. God puts Jesus forward as the guilt offering, makes payment for sins in Christ Jesus, By His blood here to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. And it was to show His righteousness at the present time. 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God cannot just simply overlook sins that would have made him unjust. That's the argument that he made and it makes there. In his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins. God had been doing that for the longest time for humanity. We should be struck dead immediately for our sins. God in his divine forbearance overlooks those things, but cannot do so forever. We should pay for what we've done. We should deal with the consequences of our sins. But rather than doing that, God sets forward an alternative. He puts forward Jesus as the sacrifice to be the redemption, to pay the price. And that is received by faith so that those who will have faith in Jesus are now pronounced justified. Isaiah said to make many to be accounted righteous. The guilty can stand before God on the day of judgment when we are all gathered before the throne And the books are opened and we are held in account for all the things that we've done and said, as the scriptures say, for we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says that those who have faith in Jesus, though the books are open, are credited, are accounted as righteous. All of those sins erased out of the ledger. Because the blood of Christ has been credited to you and me. None of those things held in our account again. This is what he came to do. This was the will of God. This was the guilt offering that was necessary. So that we could say he could save our sins as verse 11 speaks. That he would carry or bear their iniquities. This would be the means by which he could carry away our sins so that we could stand before Him whole and at peace with God. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide Him a portion with the many, and He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out His soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. There's a couple of ways to understand what this is saying. I think both of them are correct. And perhaps Isaiah means both, so I'll give you both. But it's a beautiful declaration that is made here. It could mean what he's saying is that we are the inheritance that the servant receives and the conquest then of the mighty are his spoils. That's how the Holman Christian Standard renders us. Therefore, I will give him, the servant, the many as the portion. We are the inheritance. And he will receive the mighty as a spoil as he goes about conquering those who stand against him. This is what even John 6 verse 37 said when Jesus said all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There's always been a picture of we being his portion, his inheritance. And the New Testament speaks strongly to that idea. The other way to look at it is also quite beautiful where it is describing that the servant is sharing the victory with the many. And now we become the strong with him because of the victory he has accomplished, which is what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. When he says, therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here is Paul picturing, here is Jesus conquering and we receive the spoils of victory. And we enjoy the blessings that come from his conquest. 
Because he conquers sin and conquers Satan and conquers death. I like both. So I just put up here, either way. We're enjoying what Christ has accomplished. He is described as the victorious king in this verse. He is the one who now has shown himself to be the son of God. And we enjoy the benefits. He does this for us. He does this so we could enjoy this. He does this so we can have the privilege of being joined to him. Of being his people. And enjoying what comes of being the blessings of God. Because, verse 12, because he poured out his life to death. That's how this was possible. Because he gave himself to the death. Because he was numbered with the transgressors. I don't have time to go look that up, but you can go look at Luke 22. His joining in human flesh and being like us. His willingness to take on the human flesh and be numbered with transgressors like us. It's an amazing concept. And not only live a life with us, but notice how it ends. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He carries away our sins. And then another word comes in that is so critical. Intercession. We needed somebody to stand between us and God. The scriptures over and over again are trying to teach us how sin separates us from God. It is the very first picture given to us in the scriptures. When Adam and Eve sin, separation must happen. And they are propelled then out of the garden. And we need somebody to intervene on our behalf. Since all have sinned. Since there is none righteous. We need somebody to stand on our behalf. To be an advocate. To make intercession. To help us in our condition. And that's what verse 12 says. Yet he bore the sins of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors, or even more literally for the rebels. He intercedes even though we are rebellious, even though we have broken God's law. He has intervened. And by giving his life, he makes payment for our sins, setting us free, not only from sin, but the consequences that we rightly bore on our shoulders. So that we can now be his people and be his children. I simply ask one question. What will be our response to the one who has made intercession for our sins? What will we do now that we know what our Lord has done for us? How will we live? What will we change? What will we do? Our hope is in His grace. You pull your psalm books out and we are inviting you to make the decision to give your life to Jesus.
God's love is so great that He did not want us to bear the consequences of our sins that we rightly deserve. And so it was the will of the Lord to crush the servant, to send Jesus as the offering for sin, to make payment so that we could be his children. I I don't know how we cannot respond with love toward our God. In sincere devotion and obedience to him. I don't know what else we can do. We have been pronounced justified. Innocent. And are able to have the hope of eternal life to go to be with our father. And to not pay eternity for our sins. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Will you give your life to him today? Turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and enter into that relationship with the hope of eternal life. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?